Amen. Well, welcome uh, tonight. Welcome uh, you online who are joining us, and thank you for being here. Thank you for uh, coming to experience church with us. You know, Wednesday night is such a great night to have church. It's it's like family. You know, you can get away um, with with a little more uh, family type of messages. Um, you know, I was I was really considering uh, how I was going to start tonight. And I just can't help it. I really want to tell this story. And, you know, at the end of the day, it might be the last time Pastor Ron lets me preach after this story. But I, but I really just want to tell it. Uh, it was right before we got here, you know, before, before we get into the Word, right before we got here. Uh, my wife and I were, were talking to our kids. We're eating dinner. And I don't know about you, but anytime you're trying to do something with your kids right before church, it's always really spiritual and never hectic, Right? <laughs> Right, right, right. You know what I'm talking about right there. So, uh, so here we are. We're having, we're having some moments with our kids. And, and one of my daughters, uh, she is a, she's a talker. You know, she won't talk to you, but she'll talk to everybody else about you. So, like, we'll hear from other people. And, like, she is telling everybody our family business. Whether it's like, well, Raiden, he woke up late for school today and missed the bus. Or I mean, like, and every, the whole town will know that one of my one of their siblings did. So, so she is really bad about this. So you know, me being a great father, in my opinion. Uh, so I started telling this story about Noah. So post flood Noah, when Noah struggled with the solitude and, you know, the entire world had basically been wiped out. And the only people that were left were the people on the ark and, and they're trying to rebuild the earth. I can imagine as the patriarch of that, it's got to be tough. And so Noah got drunk. I'm not saying it's okay. I'm just saying what happened. Noah got drunk. He got so drunk. He got obliterated drunk. I mean, he was stumbling around. And at one point, he took off all his clothes, and he walked around and collapses in his tent. That's how drunk Noah is. And I was telling my kids, this is the important part, not the drunk or naked part, but this is the important part. He, one of his kids pointed at Noah and said, look, look at our dad. He's naked. <laughs> Points at him, laughs. But two of his children said no. And they, said, they went in and covered him up with a blanket, backing up not looking, covering him up. And I said, who do you think God blessed? The one that pointed out his parents' faults or the one that covered them up? And I'm like, boy, this is a great moment. I've got them. You know, rarely do all four of my kids that pay attention. My, my four-year-old never pays attention to me. But the, all four of my older children are listening. They're enthralled in the story. I think it's mostly because I said the word naked. But, you know, that, that's neither here nor there. It's in the Bible. Look it up. You know, don't, don't blame me. It's in the Bible. So, uh, but, but they're listening. And then my wife chimes in with part of a story. She, she, she starts talking. And she's telling a story about, you know, another family whose son did something very embarrassing. And his mom, one of our friends, I won't tell the story, but ask Joni Copti about it one day. And so <laughs> his mom made him go to etiquette school. Like, it was that bad. They were at a really fancy restaurant, and he embarrassed his brother in public. It was a terrific story, by the way. I just can't tell it here. And so uh, he embarrassed his brother, and she made him go to etiquette school. And she tells the story, and she goes on, and Raiden... He's one of my more introspective kids. He, you can tell he's thinking about it. And he looks over at Belinda, my wife, and he goes, I've been thinking about something. 
you sound exactly like your mom when you talk. <laughs> and he says it right to my wife. And I was like, this is the greatest day of my life. <laughs> because if there's anything I've learned about being married, one way that you can quickly get a, get a chance to go camping on your couch is to talk about how much alike your wife and her mom are. <laughs> but Raiden hasn't learned this story yet, but he did learn it tonight, and I was very entertained. And so that is, there's no spiritual aspect to it at all. I just wanted to really tell that story. And so, uh, so you know, let's get into the Word tonight. We're going to be in Second Chronicles 17 through 20. We'll be skipping around there, but I want to talk a little bit about this setup. Okay, so first off, the time that this is occurring is during the divided kingdom between Israel, the northern kingdom, and Judah, the southern kingdom. So to review uh, some of this history is the two kingdoms were one kingdom under King Saul, King David, and then Solomon. Once Solomon reigned, the kingdom divided. And his son and his descendants took the southern kingdom of Judah, which included Jerusalem, and another family took over the northern kingdom. During the entire time that the kingdoms were divided, the northern kingdom, known as Israel, and the southern kingdom, known as Judah, the northern kingdom never had a king that wholeheartedly followed God. During the rest of the existence of these separated kingdoms, now, the southern kingdom would struggle with this. And so they would have kingdoms that followed, uh, kings that followed God wholeheartedly. Some kings followed God half-heartedly. And some kings didn't follow God at all. But it would rotate. And we would see this passed down from father to son. And it would appear almost as if there was no rhyme or reason. Two in a row would be good. Three in a row would be bad. One would be good. One would be bad. There was just, you couldn't figure out what was going on with that. We're going to talk about the fourth king of Judah. His name is Jehoshaphat. Okay? That's who we're going to talk about today. He was known as a good king. He did struggle with some things. If you read a commentary on Jehoshaphat, one of the things that it will say is that Jehoshaphat compromised. Okay? Well, we're going to talk about some things with his life and, and why that is. Another thing I want to talk about with this setup is there are two stories that go, that pieces of the Bible that talk about these stories. So if you're reading in your Bible and you're reading in Kings, First and Second Kings, it covers the same time period as First and Second Chronicles. Chronicles is a different kind of book if you read Chronicles. It's very uh, scribe-oriented. It's someone just writing down the facts. There's not a lot of commentary there's not a lot of, you know, narrative in here. It's really dry, but you can get some good stuff. You can get some real historical accuracy as far as what happens. Uh, Kings is a little bit different. It's a little bit more of telling a story, like a narrative. But Chronicles is geared towards chronicling the historical uh, events that occurred. All right, makes sense so far? So in, uh, when, when Jehoshaphat takes over from his father... Uh, Jehoshaphat did a few things, okay? One of the first things that he did, you know, during this divided kingdom, he took down some high places. And what that means is there were places 
Uh, and it's specifically the high places were totem poles, more or less. These poles that people would go and worship. It could have been Baal. In this case, it was Azeroth. And so that was the goddess of fertility. You know, it's a theme all throughout the Bible. It's the goddess of war and fertility. Guess what they did, you know, when they, when they worshiped this? It was a bad, uh, a bad practice in Israel and Judah. And Jehoshaphat immediately took this down. Okay, so he takes this down and he is trying to really solidify the kingdom in following God. He takes down the high places. He removes the idols. He makes it uh, to where people can't worship Baal. So he takes all the temptation of worshiping false gods and he, he removes them out of his kingdom. And then after he did that, he started sending out teachers. He sent out uh, people who could teach the law, people who could, uh, you know, priests and uh, the Levites and all throughout his kingdom to teach the book of the law, to teach all of his people what God was saying. Jehoshaphat did this. In addition, he also, to all the cities, he started fortifying the cities that he was over. So uh, his father, Asa, was he had manned now these numbers blow me away by the way but asa had about 580,000 soldiers okay we're talking about a kingdom that is half the size of jefferson county and they had a 580,000 standing army and jehoshaphat took that and started fortifying cities he started he removed the idols tore down the high places he started teaching his people the law and the word of God, okay, and he started fortifying the cities. Well, what do you reckon God started doing in his kingdom once he started doing these things? You know, this is a great leadership principle right here. If you're ever in charge of something, if you're ever a boss, if you're ever over anything, if you start immediately removing all the, the temptations, all the negative pieces, and you start replacing it with good biblical principles, the Word of God, and teaching your people, the people that you are over, these things, what do you think is going to happen to your place of business? What do you think is going to happen to your nation? It's going to prosper. And that is exactly what started happening in Judah. In fact, God blessed Judah at this time so much that it said the fear of the Lord went throughout the kingdom and all the surrounding kingdoms to where not only did nobody attack Judah, but they just started paying tribute to Judah. Like people just started bringing them stuff, silver and rams and different, different items. Just like It was just blessing the children of Israel or Judah at this time specifically. So, he, he started riches and honor, and at the height of what was going on, as he is becoming more and more rich, as his nation is being blessed, Jehoshaphat makes one of his first mistakes, okay? He allies with the northern kingdom, who at the time was King Ahab. Now, without going into a, a lot of the history of the northern kingdom, Ahab was married to one of the most famous women in history, Jezebel. 
You all remember that? Jezebel. She is one of the most famous women in history. She is one of our, or infamous might be a better way to say it. She was not known for being godly. She was known for being the opposite. She was one of the worst. And Jehoshaphat allied with Ahab by setting up his son with their daughter to marry. And that is what he did. Now, we don't see significant consequence from this immediately. But let me tell you, if you want your kids to be successful, don't have them marry the daughter of Jezebel, right? I mean, like, <laughs> that ain't great. And so uh, this, this, uh, his son, who became king later, struggled with idols because that's what Jezebel did. Jezebel brought idols to Israel. And so he struggled, his son struggled with this later. Of course, it's 25 years away, but this is something that his son struggled with. So that was one of his first compromises there. So Jehoshaphat compromised and allied with the king of Israel, Ahab. Now, uh, to keep going with the story, they allied. They were going to go to war together, and uh, Jehoshaphat was like, man, you know, whatever you need, buddy. Uh, Ahab was like, hey, now that we're friends, I've, I've got this uh, battle I need to fight. You want to come with it, was, it may have been a little bit different than that, but that's basically what he said. And you want to come with? And he was like, my people are your people, and our war, your war is our war. We're, we're going. And so they're getting pumped up. They're ready to go to battle. And Jehoshaphat sits back, and he goes, uh, you know, why don't we inquire of the Lord as to what will happen? And so, you know, Ahab, well known for having a plethora of prophets at any time, not necessarily godly prophets, but he's always got prophets to spare. So, uh, you know, Ahab's a really uh, terrible story. But basically, Ahab always has prophets who he pays to say whatever he wants them to say. And he's always got a bunch of them. And so uh, if you read the story of, uh, you know, uh, Elijah and, and, and all, the, all of what goes on, it's, it's pretty intense. So, so uh, in this case, uh, this, this, these prophets come in and he's like, awesome. Let's do it. And it's, you know, it's interesting when Jehoshaphat, if you read the story, Jehoshaphat says, let's inquire of the Lord. And if you read your printed Bible, and it's more of a study Bible, you can always tell when we, when we run across the holiest name for God. Okay? The holiest name for God, this is a sidebar, by the way, the holiest name for God is called the Tetragrammaton. Ooh, that's a fancy word. And so what that means is that is Yahweh. That is not it is the most high name that you can give God. It's calling him like by his very formal, very special name. In fact, a lot of times when, when scribes would translate it, they would have to stop what they were doing and go wash up, and then they would come back and finish it, you know, because it was so holy they just couldn't, you know, and this was during the, uh, oh gosh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to mess up my stories, but during the King James translation, when the, this, the Bible was being written, the scribes, when they would come across the Tetragrammaton, they would stop what they were doing, go wash, come back, finish writing out Yahweh, and then continue on. When they would get to it, it didn't matter how many times per verse, how many times per book or per chapter, they would have to go take a bath and clean up and then come back and finish writing. It was just such reference. And so you can see it when you're writing. And Jehoshaphat says, let's inquire of the Lord. And it's the Tetragrammaton. Yahweh, okay? 
That's a, that's a really, that's a $10 word right there. And that's why I keep saying it. It makes me sound smart. So, but uh, they, they do that. He asks that. And then Ahab responds with, yeah, let's ask the prophets, you know? And so the prophets come in and they're like, oh, the Lord hath delivered them into your hands. Go up and it'll be great. That's what the prophets say. And Jehoshaphat is starting to feel a little weird. He's like, you know, this is awfully suspect. Like, I feel like maybe I got tricked. Like, you threw a party for me. This was going really well. I asked to inquire of God, and you happened to have 400 prophets ready to go just at the, a drop of a hat to say exactly what you just told me. And so Jehoshaphat says, you know, is there anybody else, any other prophet of the Lord? And Ahab, one of my favorite things, he goes, well, I do have one, but I don't like that guy. <laughs> he always says bad things about me. And, and this is one of, when you read this, it's in Chronicles, and so you're reading it, and there's absolutely no context, there's no author's note, there's no narrative, but you can kind of read between the lines at how funny this moment was, at least to me, the, the reader. It's like, Ahab says, yeah, but I don't, I don't, I don't like him. And this guy is the most sarcastic prophet in the history of the Bible. And his name was Micaiah. I think I'm pronouncing that right, Micaiah. And he is probably the snarkiest prophet ever. And so Ahab goes, all right, man, I guess, I guess we'll get Micaiah. All right, somebody go get Micaiah. Micaiah comes in, and he, he's like, Micaiah, are you going to tell us the truth? We got 400 people here that say we should do this. Are you going to be a jerk, and, or are you going to agree with them? That's kind of what Ahab sets it up as. And Micaiah goes, I will tell you exactly what the Lord wants you to know. And he goes, perfect, that's, that's great. And he goes, I agree with them. You should definitely go up. And Ahab now becomes suspicious. He goes, wait a minute. You disagree with everything I've ever said or ever done, and you always say bad and mean things about me. Now, what the heck? Why are you agreeing with me all of a sudden? Do I need to make you swear to tell the truth? And he goes, all right, look here. Here's the real truth. You should go up because God told me that you're a bad king, and if you go up, you're going to be killed. So that's why I said that you should go because you're going to die. <laughs> that's, this is what happened. This guy is so sarcastic. He literally just said, I mean, I told you what God wanted you to hear. I didn't lie. God wants you to hear that you should go up so he can kill you. Like that's, that's what this guy is saying. It is so hilarious to me. And then one of the prophets, one of the 400, he got mad. He got so mad and he goes up to Micaiah and he slaps him in the face. And he said, how dare you? You mean to tell me that God can speak to you better than he can speak to me? Where did God go after he talked to me on his way to talk to you? And you know what Micaiah says? This is, this is where Pastor Ron might not ever invite me back. He says, uh, he says, I tell you what, the next time you go in your quiet place alone, in the dark spots, when you need to be in private, that's where God speaks to you. He goes, whenever you need to go to the bathroom, 
That's what I think about you and your conversations with God. That's what Micaiah says to this guy in front of everybody after this guy slapped him in front of, you know, all these people. And everybody got mad at him. They threw Micaiah in prison. And on his way to prison, Micaiah said, you'll see when you come back or when you don't because you'll be dead, you'll see that I was right. That was the last thing that he said. And as it turns out, he was 100% right. They go to war and they lose. In fact, Jehoshaphat was going to be killed because he was being targeted by the enemy because the enemy thought he was Ahab. And when they saw it was Jehoshaphat, they said, we don't, even, we don't even have a problem with you. We're looking for that jerk, Ahab. Let's go find him instead. And somebody took an arrow, shot it in the air at random, and it hit Ahab right in between his armor, and it killed him. So, And that's what happened to Ahab. So 400 people said, it's going to be great, buddy. And one person said, mm, it will be great for everybody else once you die. You know? And so uh, that's basically what he said. <laughs> and then that is the story of Ahab and Jehoshaphat's relationship. Whoo, man, that is, uh, that's some good stuff, right? So far, so good. No, just st storytelling. You know, I love the Bible because uh, the Bible will speak, you know, as you read it. So here we are, I'm just telling a story, and I'm telling a really long story. Like, I know this is a long story. I know we're getting into three chapters in the most dry book ever written, Chronicles. And here we are, we're reading it. Our, I'm, I'm paraphrasing as we go along, but I'm pretty much hitting most of the points there. And when Jehoshaphat was returning, he was rebuked by one of his prophets. And his prophet said this, You messed up. You messed up. Because you were partnering and allying with someone who hates God. That's the way that he worded it. Why should, you pro why should you join with someone who hates God? This is interesting to me. Because if we look around in this world, you know, and what's going on, there's a lot of, a lot of things, a lot of um, mentalities, a lot of a lot of, uh, I won't say religions, but a lot of um, political, um, political movements that really do hate God. That their goal is to destroy the works of God in this earth, to tear down the things that God has built so that they can build up the things that they want to, to really take away from the nuclear family. You know, by the way, Anytime you see, uh, if you're trying to, what side of the fence do I fall on in this particular belief? Does one tear down the family? That's probably the wrong side. That's probably the wrong side. Uh, so, but there's many places. Do not ally yourself with something, with an ideology, with a group that hates God, that hates the word of God. All right, so... This guy says, you messed up, and God's wrath will come upon you. But, you know, and Pastor Ron always says, God has a big but. But you love the Lord, and you have torn down the high places. And for that, you're going to be blessed. God likes that about you. It's basically what he says. I want to talk about this for a minute. 
um, in life, when you are when you're working towards something, whether you're you're building something or you're just trying to change behavior, uh, there there are a number of studies uh, that talk about you know the power of positive thinking. Have you ever you ever heard that? You know, there was even uh, some movements in the church. I remember in the early '90s, late '80s, it was just like uh, you know positive thinking. I was talking to people who would say, "I can't hear that. That's negative." I can't hear that. Like, well, I'm just trying to tell you what happened. The plane crashed. No, no. You know, that is negative. We can't hear a negative report. Yeah, you remember that? Don't, don't tell me if you do. So, but uh, but that, there was even religious ideologies that came through the church that was about positive, positivity and positive thinking and the power of positive thinking. It was very popular, still is, you know, and how a positive mindset can change your reality and things like that. You know, you go into a Tony Robbins seminar that is packed to the brim and it's just positivity, you know, change your mindset, change your life, all of these things. And there is some really good truth to that, but it is very worldly truth to that. But let me tell you something that, that, that you can also pull out of that is uh, within those studies, when they compare, um, you know, positive thinking with negative thinking and look at, okay, so uh, by the way, I don't know if you know this, 70% of most of your thoughts tend to go on the side of negative. Most people, most of their language, 70% of your language on average, person to person is usually negative. I don't know if you know that, interesting study. I thought it was interesting. And what it is, is that we're more likely to complain about the weather than we are to talk about how great it is, right? If you are in Southeast Texas, when we're referring to the weather, I would say it's probably closer to 95% of the, the conversations negative, where it's just in, in that language, we tend to lean a little bit more negative when we talk. Well, if you can simply remove the negativity from your language, it will change your behavior. This is true, okay? And it also changes the way that you think about things. Um, let, me get, let me give you an example uh, of what that would look like. Um, um, it is impossible to be grateful for something that you complain about. It's impossible to be thankful for a spouse that you gripe about. Like, it, it's, it's really hard. So the first thing that you have to do before you can start thinking positively is you got to remove the negative, right? You got to, before you can be grateful for something, stop being ungrateful for it, you know? So if you want to be grateful for something, I want to be thankful for my spouse, I got to stop talking bad about her. You know, I don't talk bad about you, baby. So, but I'm just saying, you, you have to start thinking, you have to, you can't just focus on the positive when you still got the negative in there. This is what Jehoshaphat did. You can't build a new kingdom if all he was to have done was just send out teachers and preachers into his kingdom, but he had not torn down the high places. He didn't take down the idols from his kingdom. What would have happened? the impact would have been diminished, right? You've got to take down the high places in your life before you can build up something good. It is impossible to, to teach your kids a principle in, in, something, uh, in, in something that is holy and good while you've got your life full of bad, you know? I'm trying to teach, if you're trying to teach your kids 
you know, about worship music and trying to get them into worship music, but they listen to Cardi B all the time. You know, you've got to remove one thing. You've got to remove the negative so that you can put something good in it. That's the first thing that Jehoshaphat did. And God said, that is what's going to keep you out of trouble. You may have made mistakes, but you know what you did right? You tore down the high places. That is one of the first things that Jehoshaphat did. So when you're talking about changing your life, tear down your high places. Tear down those things that are keeping you from doing what you're supposed to do. That might be something different for you than it is for me. You know, obviously, um, anything that goes before God is what we're talking about. Remove that from your life. Uh, My dad was a substance abuse counselor for many, many years in his second career, and he would teach a number of classes on substance abuse, and he would, he would, you know, these people that would uh, come in, whether you got a DUI and you were trying to go to work and you needed, uh, you needed to get that drug education, uh, he would teach this in his class, and he would tell, tell a story of, like, if you go down the same street every day and there's a pothole, and every time you go down the street, you, you fall into this pit, you know, this, this big pit, and you're like, oh, man, I fell, fell into it, ah, I did it again, Bum. and you figure out a way to climb out, maybe your buddy has a rope and he pulls you out, you know, and then you go along your way, and then the next day, you're coming down the same street, and there's that hole again, and you fall into it again, and every day, you fall into it. Well, he said, you know, step one is to stop falling into the pit, like, that's great, but you know what would be even better? Why don't you just pick a different street? Why don't you stop going to the same places, doing the same things? Why don't you change the way that you go home instead of driving by that bar? These are, you know, stories that my dad told me. Pick a different way home. Don't hang out with the same friends. So this is what, this is what he does here. Okay, and here, here's, so as we go throughout uh, this story, we're going to lead up to Second Chronicles chapter 20. Let's go ahead and turn there, and we're going to start reading. I know I've told you a story, but I want to read Jehoshaphat's prayer. This is a little bit further down in, in what happened, but I want to read this. Second Chronicles 20, verse 1. After this, the Moabites and Ammonites, and with them some of the Mayanites, came against Jehoshaphat for battle. Some men came and told Jehoshaphat, A great multitude is coming against you from Edom, from beyond the sea. And behold, they are in Hazazon Tamar, that is, in Gedi. Then Jehoshaphat was afraid, and he set his face to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. And Judah assembled to seek the help from the Lord. From all the cities in Judah, they came to seek the Lord. Verse 5, and Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah in Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court and said, O God, God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. In your hand are power and might so that none is able to withstand you. Did you not, our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? And they have lived in it and built it for you in a sanctuary for your name, saying, If disaster comes upon us, the sword, judgment, or pestilence, or famine, we will stand before this house and before you, for your name is in this house, and cry out to you in our affliction, and you will hear and save 
And now, behold, the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, whom you would not let Israel invade when they came from the land of Egypt, and whom they avoided and did not destroy. Behold, they reward us by coming to drive us out of your possession, which you have given us to inherit. O our God, will you not execute judgment on them? For we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. This is one of the greatest prayers in the history of the Bible. Uh, it, just when I read it, I mean, there's some, there's some pretty good prayers. By the way, there's some really terrible prayers that are pretty mediocre that God still answers. So you don't have to have a great prayer, you know, for God to answer. But this is one of the greatest prayers in, in the Bible. Here's the situation and why Jehoshaphat says this. So his life goes on after, uh, you know, he's, his defeat with Ahab. He has built up his forces. And I want to put this in perspective. At one time, and I don't know what it was after the defeat with Ahab, but at one time, the forces of Judah were over 1.2 million standing soldiers in their army. Okay? 1.2 million. And all of a sudden, this great horde that is so large, it makes 1.2 million people afraid. They say, there is not enough of us to stand against that. Now, I don't know what size the army is, but it's got to be gigantic. I don't know what they've got going, but it's got to be pretty scary. And he is standing here in front of his people, and he says, you know, they're looking to him for leadership. They're looking to him for guidance. What do we do? And his advice is, I don't know what to do. That's what he says in front of the entire assembly. This is what he prays. I do not know what to do. So here he is. He's prepared as much as he could. He's done everything he can, and he is ill-equipped. And this, to me, is one of the best prayers ever prayed as far as humility. He is the king, and he is humble enough to say, I have no power to stand against this might. In, in life, you can prepare. He's done everything that he could. He tore down the high places. He's raised up cities. He's put garrisons in the cities. He's raised up his standing army. And here he is going to face down this might, and he can't do it. And he prays, God, we don't know what to do but our eyes are on you. That's what he prays. Now, out of this crowd, uh, someone comes up and starts prophesying. And he says, here's what's going to happen. Tomorrow, you're going to stand. We're going to go out and we're going to stand. But we will not have to fight a single person. And every single one of them will be defeated. Now, perhaps the greatest the largest army that, is, that the children of Israel have ever faced, the children of Judah for sure, have ever faced, is there. And this guy just says, one of the prophets says, gets a word from God and says, tomorrow we're going to go out, stand, but we won't have to fight and everyone will be defeated. I don't know about you, but have you ever gotten a word from God in the middle of your moment? Like in the middle of a struggling moment? And have you ever thought, that doesn't sound likely. <laughs> Have you ever thought, that doesn't sound great? Like, maybe, maybe not, we'll see. Like, 
Sometimes God doesn't tell us how he's going to do it, but he tells us that he will take care of it. And sometimes all the faith we can muster is just to believe that God will and not really know how. That is enough faith. You know, um, I've told this story before, but there was a, there was a time that uh, when Belinda and I were doing uh, foster care, we were really struggling uh, with some kids, and um, one of our neighbors had called had called CPS on us, and CPS started an investigation. Now, if you do foster care, CPS is in your life. Okay, they're just always in your life, but. When they come in your life because a neighbor calls, it's a little bit more intense than when they do their regular monthly visits, you know. So they're, they're coming, and I get a random, I didn't know that they'd called, I just get a random knock on the door. Now, when you're in foster, you know, you have to let them in. Like, that's part of your license, you know, and, and being a licensed home. So these people coming into my house, and they start asking my kids questions. And they tell me things like, I'm sorry, sir, you can't be around when we ask your kids these questions who is you? You know, like that's, what are you telling me right now? Like, what? I can't be around? So they start asking my kids questions about some incident that happened, and it escalated and escalated and escalated, and it was something that uh, someone had accused some of my kids of doing something bad. Now, I hadn't known my kids for very long at the time. They had been with me for just about six weeks, okay? So I knew them, they were normalizing, but I didn't really know them well enough to go, there's no way that that would have happened because they had lived an entire life before they came with me. And these things started escalating and escalating to where CPS sent us a letter that basically said something like this. If we find against you in this matter, not only will we take your foster kids away, but we'll take your other kids away too. That's basically the letter that they had sent us. And so I'm thinking about all kinds of crazy stuff. I'm like, I am about to cash out my 401k and move to Mexico because I don't care what you say, you're not getting my kids. You know, like that, that's, it's, cra it's crazy time stuff. And I'm stressed about it. And I'm sitting right where Jeff is. And Pastor Ken is exhorting the people during praise and worship. And I'm stressed about it. I had been to four lawyers and nobody knew what to do. Nobody, nobody had an answer for me. And I am so stressed about this that it, I am physically unable to pay attention to what's going on. But Pastor Ken is praying, and I just remember feeling this release as Pastor Ken was praying, as he was encouraging the rest of the church to pray. And at that moment, God spoke to me, and he said, by tomorrow at this time, you will not even, this will be so over, you will not even be thinking about it. I will deliver you from this. And by tomorrow at this time, it was about 7.15 at the time, you won't be thinking about it. And I thought to myself at that moment, there is absolutely no way that that's true. Because I'm so stressed out about it, even if you were to deliver me, like, and fix it all, how would I not be thinking about it? Like, how would I not be thinking about it at this time? You know, that would be impossible. But I let God speak to me in that moment. And a peace came over me. And I knew I didn't have to worry about it anymore. I didn't have to stress about it anymore. I knew that no matter what would happen, that that would be over for me. So, uh, in, and by the way, to get to the end of the story, it absolutely was true. By about 11 o'clock the next day, everything had been taken care of. God delivered everything. It was like every piece of, 
every piece of it fell into place so perfectly that I could not have imagined in a million years how God would have taken care of it, and he took care of every single detail. And by 7.15 that night, I was thinking about something completely different. And at 7.30, God reminded me, hey, what were you doing at 7.15? Like, I was thinking about the Astros, honestly. Like, that's, and so, like, I, I wasn't thinking about it at all. It was amazing to me. All right, so a couple of takeaways as we get here. Uh, number one, uh, take down your high places. Take down your high places. Uh, Jehoshaphat took these down. That was one of the first things that he did, took down the high places. Number two, this is a pastoronism, it's one of my favorites from his 1,041-point sermon. Actually, I don't know how many points there are, but there's a lot of them. So it is, what you compromise to keep, you will lose anyway. Jehoshaphat compromised to keep his kingdom strong for his son. And if you read further along in the story, he married his son off to the wrong woman, and his son ended up ruling for not very long, I think about eight years, and it was a terrible, tumultuous time. Everything that he did to set his son up for success because he compromised to do so, he ended up ruining his son's reign for that. What you compromise to keep, you will lose anyway. Uh, number three, no matter how much you prepare, prayer may still be the only thing between you and defeat. Uh, Jehoshaphat taught his people, took down the high places, built up cities, garrisoned cities, trained up an army, 1.2 million it was 300,000 uh, 300, mighty men of valor, 280,000 from a commander, 280,000 of, uh, you know, from Benjamin, 200,000 from this tribe, 180,000 from that. I mean, it was, it was a lot of people, and it was not enough. Everything that you do in this life, no matter what you do, your retirement, your family, everything you set up, the job that you have, still may not be enough between you and disaster, between you and defeat. The only thing that ultimately saved Jehoshaphat was that prayer. And when God stood up, and when that prophet stood up and gave him a word, he said, go into battle, stand, and you won't have to fight. You have a choice, okay? You can think about it and fret about it between now and tomorrow when you have to go do that thing, or you can walk in victory now to where tomorrow, after that's over, you're not even thinking about it anymore, Right? If God gives you a word, walk in it now. Why, why wait till it actually gets fulfilled? God gave you a word. Jo be happy about it now, right? Be happy about it now. God gave you a word. By the way, I've read the end of the book. It all works out for the best for us. You know, it's pretty good. God gave us a word now. We can walk in it now. We get to walk in the victory now even though we're still walking through the fire. Amen? And then the last one, if you want to win the battle, let your praise band go first, man. You know, uh, part of what Jehoshaphat did, he, in, he started the tradition for putting the praise band. He was like, you know what God said we were going to win? You know what we're going to do? Instead of like marching our, our pikemen forward, we're going to put our praise band in front. And when they went into battle the next day, their praise band 
was worshiping God in front of them. And it says, and, and, and we don't have time to read it, but it's, if you read it in 2 Chronicles 20, it says, and when the worshipers started praising, when the worshipers started praising, the armies of Moab rose up and started attacking their allies. I don't know what happened, whether it confused them, whether they heard the sound, or whether God just chose that moment to move. That's when God performed the miracle, to where when they found him, this is the craziest part, when they looked at the watchtower and they looked over the great horde, the biggest army that had ever marched against them, not one was alive. Every single one of them, not one was alive, and, it's, and the Bible says, not one escaped not one of their enemies escaped. That is how powerful that prayer was in God's deliverance. So take down your high places, which compromise to keep you will lose anyway. No matter how much you prepare, prayer may still be the only thing between you and defeat. When you get a word from God, walk in it. And when you want to win the battle, let your praise band go first, right? <laughs>